are listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. This is Line Upon Line, where we study God's Word line by line. And I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. verses 9 and 10, he asks a very important question. He asks, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? And then he answers his own question. Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. We have to be mature. We have to understand God's word. We have to move beyond the milk of the word to the meat of the word. He says, for precept must be upon precept. That is, the instructions from the Lord, we have to build, put them together. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little and there a little. We have to put the different scriptures together to really understand doctrine. So, if you're serious about your walk with God and you want to understand true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible, tell a friend, call your pastor, and let's get into the study as we study God's Word, line upon line. So we are up to Luke chapter 9. We covered Luke 8 last week. Let's uh, just begin with a word of prayer and then we'll get into Luke chapter 9. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you ever so grateful to you. Thank you, God, for your word. Although it's thousands of years old, it is relevant more than ever. As we live in these last days and we approach the return of your glorious Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we need these words, Father, and we just thank you for the audience that's listening. We pray that you'll bless them, Father, with a hunger and a thirst for your word, and we pray that you will bless this study now. We're asking this, Father, in Jesus' most holy name. Last week we were in Luke chapter 8 and we saw a number of miracles there. We saw Jesus uh, uh, healing, bringing a, a, a woman back from the dead. Uh, we, we just tremendous miracles and clearly this is not an, an ordinary human being. This is the Son of God that has come into the world. Let's continue now in Luke chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. Luke writes, then he called his twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. So now he's, he's really magnifying his ministry. He's giving them the powers that he has so that they can magnify his ministry. And he sent them to preach. What did he send them to preach? The kingdom of God. Go and preach the kingdom of God. That, that is what Jesus Christ came to earth to reveal and to preach. Not just some generic gospel, but the good news of the kingdom of God. 
So he gives these 12 disciples power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. He sends them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So, so the kingdom of God is going to replace the kingdom of, of devils. The kingdom of Satan and his his minions. So he has they have authority over all devils, and then this healing of the sick in Israel is a foretaste of the time when the kingdom comes and all diseases will be healed. And he said unto them, Take nothing for your journey, neither staves nor scrip, neither bread nor money, neither have two coats apiece. And whatsoever so he wants them just to go and trust God. God will provide. And whatsoever house you enter into, there abide. So whatever house that you go into, stay there, and thence depart, and then, then you leave. So you, you go to that home that's willing to be hospitable to you, and base yourself there, and then when you're finished preaching there, you move on. And whosoever will not receive you, when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet for a testimony against them. So this is clearly uh, legal language. There is going to be a judgment. And these people who did not receive you, these Israelites who did not receive you, make sure you shake off the dust off your feet so that it can be a testimony, a witness against them. And they departed and went through the towns. What, did they, what were they doing? Preaching the gospel. Which gospel? A gospel about Jesus or about his kingdom? He sent them to, to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And they departed and went through the towns preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So anybody who came to them who needed healing, they healed. Any Israelite that came to them. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was done by him. And he was perplexed. He was confused. Because that it was said of some that John was risen from the dead. So there was confusion around who this miracle worker was that was preaching the, the, the gospel of the kingdom and was doing all of this healing and, and exorcism. And so some were saying, it's John the Baptist. He's come back from the dead. And of some, that Elijah had appeared. So some were saying that Christ was John the Baptist resurrected. Others were saying, no, 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 it's Elijah. And of others, that one of the old prophets was risen again. So there's a prophecy that says Elijah must come, and so they're saying, no, this must be the Elijah that's come. There's also the, prophes the prophecy of Moses that says that a prophet would come. And others are saying, well, maybe it's one of the old prophets that has been resurrected. Notice what they're not saying here. Now, you know, if you're, if you're a Christian with the traditional Christian theology, when the saints, when good people die, they go to heaven. Nowhere in this passage do you get the sense that the saints here believe that John the Baptist is in heaven, that Elijah is in heaven, that the prophets are in heaven. There's a very clear understanding that all of these people are dead, and maybe they've been resurrected from the dead. And Herod said, well, John I've beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he, he knew clearly, I know I killed John, so who could this be? And it says, and he desired to see him. Not good. <laughs> it's not that, oh, I just want to see who this is. Uh, I, got, I, I took care of John. Maybe this is someone else that I have to take care of that might be threatening my authority. And the apostles, when they were returned, 
told him, that is Christ, all that they had done. So he gave them power, they went out and they were preaching, and uh, they were using this, this miraculous power that they had been granted. And he took them and went aside privately into a desert place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And the people, when they knew it, followed him. So, of course, if he's the one doing all these miracles and healing, and so they find out where he is, they, they go and they follow him. And he received them and spoke unto them of what? Of the kingdom of God. Luke is making it very clear that Christ was on a mission. And he was, he, he was constantly on point. He is the future king. He is coming to upset the kingdoms of this world. And that was his message. He was always preaching the kingdom of God. How often do you hear about the kingdom of God? Because Jesus Christ's message was all about the kingdom of God. So they followed him and he received them and he spoke unto them. This is verse 11 of Luke 9. He spoke unto them of the kingdom of God and healed them that had need of healing. So anyone that came to him that had need of healing uh, among these Israelites, he would go ahead and heal them. And when the day began to wear away, so it's getting long now, further into the day, then came the twelve and said unto him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the towns and country round about and lodge and get victuals or get food, get, get uh, supplies to look after provisions, to look after their, their appetite. For we are here in a desert place. So they're in the middle of the desert with this huge, the, the, the disciples are seeing a, a tragedy in the making. There are all these people, young, old, uh, a great multitude in the middle of the desert with the Lord. And at some point, you know, deserts get really cold at night and they've got to make their way home and there's no place for them to get food or water. And uh, it could be a massive tragedy. So they're suggesting to the Lord that, you know, probably it's about a good time now. If they leave now, they can get into the towns, they can find accommodation, they can find food. Uh, would be a good idea to sort of uh, dismiss them at this point. But he said unto them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more but five loaves and two fish. So we just have five loaves of bread and two fish. We, we can't feed this massive crowd unless we should go and buy meat for all these people. So I guess there's another option. Instead of you sending all the people away, we could go but then there's a lot of people here. We'd have to buy food for all these people and figure out how to transport all of that food back into the desert. And then in verse 14, for there were about 5,000 men. So let's just say 5,000 men, let's say 5,000 women, and let's say 10,000 children. So maybe there's 20,000 people that had followed Christ into the desert. And they're saying, okay, I guess we could go and try and buy food, but food for 20,000 people? And he said to his disciples, okay, I've got another solution. Make them sit down by 50s in a company. So take all of these people and get them to sit down in groups of 50. And they did so, and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them, and broke and gave to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they did eat, 
and were all filled. So they ate until they were full. And there was taken up of the fragments that remained to them twelve baskets. So they, they, everybody ate, everybody was full, and then when they gathered all the fragments, there was enough to fill twelve baskets. Twelve baskets, twelve disciples, each disciple has a basket. This is a, this is a real lesson for them. And there's you know, twelve tribes of Israel, twelve disciples, twelve baskets. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. So they were trying to figure out earlier who this was. Some were saying it's definitely John the Baptist. You know, he's got the same ministry, same message. Uh, it must be John the Baptist resurrected. Others were saying, no, this must be Elijah. Others were saying it's one of the prophets. Now because of this particular miracle, they're saying this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. And the reason what they're, they're saying this is in Deuteronomy 18, Moses told them that God would raise up unto them a prophet like unto him, and that they should follow that prophet. Now Moses fed the people in the wilderness. And, now, and, and so Moses said, this prophet that's coming will be like me. And so here, Christ is feeding them in the wilderness, and this is where they conclude, okay, you know who this is? This is the prophet that Moses said God would raise up that would be like him. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, oh, sorry, I wanted to just uh, say this. Um, John records this same miracle uh, of the feeding of the 5,000 men. He records it in John 6. And he has a very different angle than Luke. Remember when we opened Luke, Luke's purpose is to write to Theophilus an orderly account so that Theophilus would have a full understanding of Christ's ministry, and then he wrote Acts as well so that he had a full understanding of Paul's ministry, and he would be in the best position to defend Paul and understand how Paul's ministry is rooted or was rooted in Christ's ministry. John, in John chapter 20, we see that he has a very different purpose for writing. He, John says that the reason he wrote his gospel is that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that believing we might obtain eternal life. This is why John wrote. Very different purpose statement for his gospel. But he records the same miracle uh, with a different angle. He says, John, John 6 verse 14, uh, actually, let me pick it up. Actually, yes, yeah, sorry, that, that scripture that I read John 6, was from John 6.14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet, that should come into the world. And then in verse 26 of John 6, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat the loaves and were filled. So what John records here is that after Jesus did all these miracles, people were following him because of the healings and, and raising people from the dead. But then, when, after he fed them, and he crossed the sea and went over to Capernaum, the people followed him. They went out of their way to find him. And when they found him, they, they, were, they were curious as to how he got over there so quickly without a boat. And so they asked him, you know, how did you get here? And then instead of answering the question, he just tells them point blank, look, you're not following me because you saw the miracles and you're trying to figure out now who I am. You're following me because I fed you. 
and all you care about is food. And then he says, labor not for the meat which perishes, but for that meat which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him has God the Father sealed. And then in verse 31, they answer. It's a bit of an argument that they're having with Christ. And so he's, you know, they're saying, oh, Master, how did you get here? You're very miraculous. And he's saying, look, you're not following me because of the miracles. You're following me because I fed you. And all you really care about is, is feeding your, filling your belly. And then they're saying, well, in verse 31, our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So you fed us in the desert, but you only fed us once. Moses fed our fathers for 40 years in the desert. So it's appropriate that we can follow you, and you should be able to do this uh, miracle of feeding us uh, over time so that we don't have to be struggling to feed ourselves and feed our family. And then Jesus answered, Jesus said unto them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So really, it wasn't Moses that fed you. It was God that was feeding you. But that even wasn't the true bread from heaven. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. And then they said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus answered them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. And so John records this exchange that, that God had with these people uh, to really uh, highlight their carnality, their focus on the physical bread, but also the message from Christ that he is the bread of life. Luke now is just recording the miracle, and he goes on here in Luke 9, verse 18. And it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him. And he asked them, saying, Who say the people that I am? So, so he, he was now curious, what are people saying about me? Who do people think I am? And verse 19, Luke 9, verse 19, they answering said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. So Christ is wondering, you know, when, when they see these miracles, who, who, do they, who do they think I am? Who do they think is doing all of this? And so they report back faithfully to him, well, some are saying you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Some are saying you're Elijah. And others are saying that one of the old prophets has come back to life. So that's fine. So now Christ wants to understand something else. In verse 20, he says, he said unto them, but whom say you that I am? Okay. Christ never told them who he was. He chose them, and he taught them from the scriptures, and he did many miracles in front of them, specific miracles that are in accordance with the scriptures. Then he gave them power to do these miracles in accordance with the scriptures and to preach the kingdom of God. And all of this is called, causing a stir. And so he wants to know, what, who do people think I am? And now he wants to know, okay, who do you think that I am? Peter answering said, the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. We, we, we know the scriptures. We've seen what you've done. It's in accordance with the scriptures. You're the Messiah. 
Now, notice verse 21. Because a lot of people say, well, where did Christ say that he's God? Where did Christ say he's the Messiah? Well, notice verse 21. And he immediately charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing. Okay, you have figured it out. Bing, right on. I'm glad you figured it out. Now make sure you don't tell anybody. This needs to be a secret. People cannot know who I am. Now Matthew records the same exchange in Matthew 16 and verse 17. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. So all these people are confused about who Christ is. Maybe it's John the Baptist come back to life. Yeah, definitely. No, no, no. This is Elijah. No, it's not Elijah. It's one of the prophets. I think maybe it's Micah. Maybe it's uh, Elisha. It's, uh, maybe it's Zechariah. One of these prophets has come back to life. No. This is the Son of God. The Christ of God. The Messiah. And the only way you can know that is if the Father reveals it to you. Well done, Simon Barjona. Then, verse 20 of Matthew 16, then charged he his disciples, so he is now giving them a command, that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Messiah. So make sure you do not tell anybody. So great, the, God has revealed this to you. Everyone else is in confusion as to what, who, who I am and what my identity is. God has revealed it to you. I'm commanding you make sure you do not tell anybody. In Mark, he records the exchange. In Mark 8, verse 29, he said unto them, But whom say you that I am? And Peter answered and said unto him, You are the Messiah. You are the Messiah. And he commanded them that they should tell no man of him. So every single time this exchange is recorded, what the authors also record is that it was very important to Jesus that even though the disciples figured out, or I shouldn't say figured out, really God revealed it to them, who he was, that they were under strict instructions not to tell anybody. Why is that? Well, Mark explains in verse 31, Mark 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them. So once they knew now who he was, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. So it's important that the, the elders just carry out their will. The elders do what they want to him. And we cannot interfere with this process. We cannot jeopardize the process. Let them be as evil as they are. And don't give them any sense as to who it is they're really dealing with. So it's important that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. He has to be killed. And after three days, rise again. So this is why it's important that you do not disclose to them who I really am. And Luke records the same thing. Back to Luke 9. And verse 22, Luke goes on to say, Christ says, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders, and chief priests, and scribes, and be slain, and be raised the third day. This is essential. 
This is part of the whole purpose why I've come to earth. And if you spread this out too soon as to who I really am, it may jeopardize this process. And this, I, I have to be slain. I have to suffer many things. I have to be slain. And I have to be buried for three days and three nights. And then I will rise again according to the scriptures. In fact, if we look at 1 Corinthians, we just hold a place here in Luke 9, we're going to come back. But in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 8, Paul writes that none of the princes of this world knew who Christ was. None of the princes, none of the leaders of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So this is why it was so important that if this knowledge of who Jesus really was, that he was the Son of God, the Messiah, the coming, the coming one, that they wouldn't have slain him. And then the whole project would have been jeopardized. But Christ had to come. He had to be the perfect Israelite. He had to live by every word of God. And then as this innocent lamb, he had to be slain. So he, he, he was serious. He commanded them. You make sure, so wonderful, God has revealed this to you. You make sure you do not tell anybody. Back to Luke 9, verse 23. And he said to them, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So just immediately after explaining to them, you cannot disclose who I am because I have to be slain. Now, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to follow me, you had better deny yourself and take up your cross daily. This, this is not, oh, come know the Lord, how wonderful it is to know the Lord. Oh, come and prosperity gospel, to, to know the Lord is to be rich. It's quite the opposite. To know the Lord is to suffer. Because the Lord came to conquer the demonic influence over this world. He, he, he came to put down demonic kingdoms. And these demonic kingdoms and their puppets, their human puppets, are going to fight to hold on to their power. And they're going to they're fight against Christ. They fought against Christ when he was here. And they're going to fight against his disciples. So if we are going to follow Christ, we had better understand this is all about the kingdom of God. And this is a battle. And it's a spiritual battle. He says, whosoever will, so he, then he explains why. Because whoever will save his life shall lose it. So if you're not willing to take up your cross, if you're not willing to deny yourself, then you're going to fight to try to save your life. Your priority will be your life. And if you fight to save your life, you're going to be seduced. You're going to be deceived. You're going to be overtaken. You're going to be conquered. And so to be a Christian, we must deny ourselves. Why? Because the kingdom of God becomes our highest priority. Loyalty to Jesus Christ becomes our highest priority. And he explains, but whoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. And clearly he's talking about eternal life. The just shall live by faith. So because we believe Jesus Christ died and three days and three nights later, he came back to life. And that he has the power to bring us back to life from the dead. We're not afraid of death. And we will stand for Christ no matter what. He says in verse 25, For what's the advantage for a man? Well, what is a man advantaged? 
if he gain the whole world and then lose himself or be cast away? What's the point of that? This life is temporary. You know, people today, at, you know, I think the oldest age that I've heard lately is 114 years old. Maybe you will live to 114. Let's say 120. Moses lived to 120. Let's say you live to 120. I doubt it. You know, today with all the chemicals in the food and the chemicals in the environment, maybe we make it to 80 or 90. But then so what? That, that goes by like a flash and it's over. And so you, 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 you prioritized this life. You sought the bread of this life and you didn't seek the bread of eternal life. And how are you, how are you further ahead? Now, now your life is, has perished. So, to gain the whole world and lose yourself, this is, a, this, is, <laughs> this is no victory. He says, For whosoever, verse 26, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed. So it's very clear to Christ that true Christianity will be a shameful thing. And that's what the, the, the true churches do not have twenty and thirty thousand members, on a, you know, weekly Sunday service. You, you know, the, the place is packed. It's such a popular thing to do, and 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 everybody loves you. Christ is saying, because of this conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, that those of the kingdom of light are going to be ridiculed. They're going to be called racist. They're going to be called bigots. They're going to be called narrow-minded. They're going to be called imbeciles. And to be the opposite, to be participating in the kingdom of darkness, you're going to be sophisticated. You're going to be acceptable. You're part of the inner crowd. You're going to be included, not excluded. So Christ makes it clear that to follow him will bring shame. Let me say that again. Christ is making it clear that to follow him will bring shame. Are you prepared to take up your cross daily? Are you prepared to deny yourself? Are you prepared to turn away from sin, to repent, to be true to God, and then still be called a criminal? Maybe even be put in jail for no fault of your own. And no matter what, not deny Christ. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words of my words, the truth, that you're going to be quoting Christ, they're going to be saying, hate speech, that's hate speech. No, it's the word of God. It's love speech. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed. Oh dear. When, when all of this comes to a head and, and reality is upon us, and the Son of Man is here, we don't want him to be ashamed of us. So we cannot be ashamed of his words. For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he shall come in his own glory, and in his Father's, and of the holy angels. But I tell you a truth, I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. This is verse 27 of Luke chapter 9. And this verse has caused a lot of controversy, a lot of questions, because the kingdom of God is not here yet. And Christ had this exchange 2,000 years ago. So 2,000 years ago, Christ told a truth 
that there are some that were standing right there in front of him that would not die until they see the kingdom of God. So what does this mean? Well, one possibility is maybe some of those disciples are still alive today. Maybe they're hiding in a cave somewhere and they're 2,000 years old. And uh, when the kingdom of God comes, they'll reveal themselves. That's a possibility. Highly unlikely. In fact, ridiculous. Another possibility is Christ was wrong. That Christ said, I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And then they all died. And so Christ was wrong. Another possibility is maybe the kingdom of God is already here. Except we know that it's not because when we read Revelation, we see the convulsions that this earth has to go through in order for the kingdom of God to come to earth. So there's only one possibility that's left. Well, really, there was only one possibility in the first place. And that is whatever the, the Lord says is true. So Christ was telling the truth that there were some standing there that wouldn't die until they see the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, we need to understand that we're reading the English. In the Greek, it says the Basileia, that there are some that will not taste of death until they see the Basileia of God. Now, Basileia is typically translated kingdom, as in the realm of, of the king. But abstractly, it can also mean the rule or the reign of God. So if we take Basileia as meaning the reign of God, it means that there are some there that wouldn't die until they see how God is going to reign. They're going to see the reign of God or the rule of God. And we don't have to go far to see that what Jesus Christ said is in fact true. So rather than all of this conjecture, all of this guessing, all of this making stuff up, let's just keep reading the text. So Christ tells us a truth, that there are some standing in front of him that are going to see the reign of God before they die. And Luke just carries on. In verse 28 it says, And it came to pass about eight days later, after these sayings, so it took... It's, the people are still alive eight days later. These people who were in front of him, eight days later, they're going to see the reign of God. And it came to pass about eight days later, after these sayings, he took Peter, John, and James. Those are the three. So he says, I tell you the truth, there are some standing here that will not taste of death until they've seen the reign of God. And then he takes these three, Peter, John, and James, and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion or the appearance, the outward appearance of his face was altered. His face changed. And his clothing was white and glistening. What, what they are seeing is the king in his glory. He just told them earlier that you better not be ashamed of me. Because when I come in my own glory and in my father's and of the holy angels, I'm going to be ashamed of you. Then he says, you know, speaking of this glory, that there are some standing here that they're not going to die until they see this glory. They're going to see me in my glory. 
And then Luke just carries on to tell us that they actually saw him in his glory. That he took Peter, John, and James, and they, and they went up to a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, his face changed. And his clothing changed. And what they saw, if we go to Revelation 1, when we see the glorious Christ, the resurrected Christ, in Revelation 1 verse 13, John heard the resurrected glorious Lord speak to him. And he turned to see who was speaking to him. And in verse 13 it says, In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt around the chest with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance, his face, was as the sun shining in its strength. This is the glorious Jesus that Peter and John and James saw the glory of God. That when he comes in this glory, he's going to be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him. And he says, there are some here that are going to see me in my glory. And Peter, John, and James saw it. And in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, now, this is going to be critical that we understand this. He is going to come in his glory, but he can't do it right away. And in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, Paul writes, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This is such an important verse. And many people read over this. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3. Underline it in your Bible. Christ died for our sins. And don't generalize this. This is not our sins, the whole world. Christ died for the sins of Israel. Paul is saying Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Because Israel was evil. Israel was wicked. And they needed a redeemer. And there's a very specific way that they had to be redeemed. And so Christ is saying, don't be ashamed of me. I'm going to be crucified. But don't be ashamed of me and don't be ashamed of my words because I'm coming back in glory. And I can't come in glory now because I have a redemptive process that I'm undertaking. I have to save Israel. And in order to save Israel, I must suffer. I must suffer many things and I must be crucified. And the blood that I shed, that's how I'm going to redeem Israel according to the scriptures. This has all been laid out. And I'm going to be buried for three days and three nights and then I'm going to rise according to the scriptures. And that he, verse 4 of First uh, Corinthians 15, and that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Underline that. Everything is according to the scriptures, the ancient scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above 500 brethren at once. So this was not done in a corner. Everyone, and this is how Christianity took off. People didn't believe that he really was the Messiah until he was crucified and then three days and three nights later he came back to life and there were multiple multiple witnesses over 500 at once and this spread like wildfire he says over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain unto this unto this day 
So hundreds of them were still alive, maybe 450. Maybe 50 people had died that, that were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. But there were still 450 alive. So you can go and verify with them, and they will tell you, yes, we saw him personally. He says, of whom the greater part remain unto this day, but some have fallen asleep, some have died. So let's go back to Luke 9 now, because this is all very, very important. In fact, this might be the most important passage in the whole book of Luke. I'm not sure, but I, th I think it might be. So, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of my words. Because when I come back in my glory, I'll be ashamed of you. And there are some standing here, right now, and they're not, they're not going to die until they see me in my glory. First. And so, eight days later, three men saw him in his glory. But three days and three nights after his death, over 500 men saw him resurrected. But here, these men, these three, saw him in his glorified state to understand this is the king. This is the king priest of the order of Melchizedek, a king priest. And so they saw the, the reign of God. Now he continues in verse 30. And behold, so he's now, his, his, his face has changed. It's as bright as the sun. His, his clothing is bright white. And verse 30, Luke says, And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah. So Moses and Elijah are now conversing with him, who appeared in glory. So they also appeared in glory. And they spoke of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So this is really interesting now. They, they were having a conversation about something, and it was about something in particular. It was about his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. This is what they were talking about. What does this mean? Well, first of all, we need to unpack this a little bit. This word that is translated decease first of all notice it's his it belongs to him and uh, the Greek is the word exodus so Moses and Elijah Moses representing the law Elijah representing the prophets they were speaking to Christ about his exodus because Moses had an exodus and now there's another exodus that they're talking about which Christ is going to accomplish at Jerusalem. What is this all about? Well, we need to understand something here. The children of Israel were taken captive. They were made slaves by the Pharaoh of Egypt. And they were in slavery for 400 years. And then God raised up Moses to lead them out of Egypt. And that was called the Exodus. And there were millions of them. And they walked across the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army went after them, and they drowned in the sea, and the Israelites were free. That was Moses' Exodus. Moses is now talking to Jesus about his Exodus. And the scriptures reveal that there is going that God is going to be known as the God who brought his people out of captivity. And this second exodus is going to be so great 
that no one will even refer to the first exodus. The scripture says the, the first exodus, God will not be known. That, you know, he always says, I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Well, when this second exodus is accomplished, it is going to be of such a scale that nobody will refer to the first exodus. Now, what is this all about? Let's go to Leviticus 20. In Leviticus 20, we, we need to understand something about this exodus. Why, why it needs to be accomplished at Jerusalem. Moses didn't have to accomplish his exodus. He, just, he was just brought up and he took the people out of Egypt. The difference between Moses' exodus and the exodus that Jesus will lead, the fundamental difference is this. The ancient Israelites were made slaves because they were too numerous. The, the Egypt that didn't know Joseph, he was looking at the situation and said, you know, we've got these migrants in our land and they're multiplying like crazy. It's just a matter of time before they take over our civilization and suddenly we'll be subjected to them. So we need to be shrewd here and we need to make sure that we don't allow this to happen. So the Pharaoh put them into slavery. They did nothing wrong. It was no fault of their own. Now the Israelites are in bondage and subjection and exile because of their sin. In Leviticus 20 and verse 22, it says this in the Torah, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my judgments and do them. Why? that the land where I bring you to, dwell you to dwell therein spit you not out. So the land is holy and God is holy and the people must be holy because God wants to fellowship with his people in this land. The same way that the land was holy and Adam and Eve were holy and God was holy and Adam and Eve sinned and they needed to be exiled from the land. They needed to be ejected from the land, from the garden. So when we dwell with God, we have to be holy. And here the, the understanding that God gave to the people was, look, you have to be holy. You have to, do, you have to do my commandments or the land will spit you out. In verse uh, 27 of chapter 26 in Leviticus, Leviticus is all about holy living. So after they had built the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, when God moved in, then the very next book is, is Leviticus that teaches them how to live with God as your neighbor. Leviticus 26, verse 27, And if you will not, for all this, hearken unto me, but walk contrary unto me, then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury. I will walk contrary unto you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. This is the agreement. This is the, the contract between God and his people. If you don't obey me, if, you, if, you, if you're going to contradict me, I'm going to contradict you. And I'm going to chastise you seven times for your sins. In Numbers 35, in verse 34, it says, Defile not therefore the land which you shall inhabit, wherein I dwell. I dwell in this land. So make sure you do not defile it, because I'm a holy God. 
For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, verse 16, we get a bit of insight. Ezekiel 36, verse 16, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Therefore, I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land. So they were, they were murdering in the land, in the holy land. And for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen. They had to be ejected from the land. I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed through the countries. According to their way, and according to their doings, I judged them. So God looked at their doings, and he looked at the covenant. And he did exactly to them what the covenant called for. Because God is a faithful God. God, When God speaks his word, he means it. He doesn't speak his word and then change his mind. When he speaks his word, he means it. And so because he's a faithful God, he carried out the punishments that were outlined in the covenant. Verse 20. And when they entered unto the heathen where they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said to them, These are the people of the Lord, and are gone forth out of his land. But I had pity for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen where they went. So, God acts according to the covenant. And he, th- th- there's a challenge now, because... According to the Mosaic Covenant, if they defile the land, then there are all these punishments that come upon them. So so the northern tribes of Israel, the Assyrians came in and wiped them out and scattered them and mixed them up with all the people and they, they lost their identity. The southern kingdom of Judah, the Babylonians came and they had a different foreign policy. Rather than scatter the people and, and dilute them genetically, they would take the best, the, the most talented of the people and have them serve in the palace and the rest they would just subjugate. And so the Babylonians subjugated the Jews, but then God raised up Cyrus, which allowed them to go back to the land, Judah, Jerusalem, and rebuild it. But then they continued to reject God to the point where they when God came to the earth, they got into conflict with Jesus. So now they're in, in subjugation. Even though they're in Jerusalem and they're in Judah, they are subject to the Roman Empire, the beast power of the time, the Roman Empire. And so there's this, there's this um, conundrum where according to the Mosaic Covenant, they don't deserve to be in that land. They deserve to be enslaved. They deserve, deserve to be subjugated. They deserve to be scattered and humiliated. This is the agreement that they had with God. So that's one. So God has to be faithful to that agreement. On the other hand, he has an agreement, a covenant with Abraham that says that your descendants will be a blessing to the whole world. And and the whole world will be blessed through your descendants. And your descendants will inherit the land. And that covenant is unconditional. So the covenant with Moses was conditional. If you obey me, you'll inherit the land. If you disobey me, you'll be subjugated. But the covenant agreement with Abraham was unconditional. So now God has this conundrum where he wants to fulfill, he has to fulfill the agreement with Abraham, which is unconditional. And he has to fulfill the agreement with Moses, which is conditional, which they broke. 
So the way that he solves this is through this, or the way that he can now rescue the people and, and bring them back from all the different lands where they've been taken captive, this second exodus is through the death of Christ. That Jesus Christ came to earth to live as the perfect Israelite. To look at the covenant, he studied the covenant, studied Deuteronomy in detail. When, when, when Satan came to attack him, he responded with the scriptures and he lived by every word of God. And then he was killed. So he was the perfect Israelite and that enabled him to rightfully inherit the land because he has satisfied the covenant agreement. And as, a, as an Israelite, he's a child of Abraham and he satisfied the, the agreement. The Israelites now if they accept him as their savior, they can inherit the land through him. The punishment that he promised them, that they would be humiliated and subjugated and, and exiled from the land, that punishment, Christ took it. So now God can fulfill his word, and Christ in a sense was exiled from the land for three days and three nights, and he was humiliated and he was crucified, and all of that, he was innocent. All of that belonged to Israel. So he took their punishment, and they can now inherit the promises through him as the perfect Israelite. And that's why the scripture is so clear that he died according to the scriptures. And you would have to study, if particularly Isaiah, uh, Isaiah from chapter 40 to 66, where it talks about this mysterious servant that's going to come into the land. And it is God. God is going to come to redeem his people. And in Isaiah 53, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs. Our is Israel. That unto us, Isaiah 9, 6, Unto us, Israel, a son is born. And unto us, a son is given. And, and he, he is going to have the government. He is this mysterious being that has come as a human being that's going to rule the whole universe. And, but he's coming as a suffering servant first, and, and the Israelites didn't understand this. He says, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, which is everything that they deserved. But he is the propitiation for Israel, that the wrath of God is appeased in him, that God can fulfill the covenant wrath on Christ, and then his wrath is appeased. But he was wounded for our transgressions, not the whole world. He was wounded for Israel's transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, so that they could have peace with God, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the iniquity of Israel. According to God has no covenant agreement with Gentiles. It is the covenant agreement with Israel that causes God to take the iniquity of Israel and lay it on Christ. And now Israel, if they accept Christ as their savior, can come into the promised land and inherit eternal life. And Gentiles, this is the mystery of God, are now invited to be grafted into Israel so that this promise of eternal life for Israel is ultimately for the whole world. In Colossians 1 verse 13, Paul writes that Christ has delivered Israel from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. So they were, they were under the power of darkness. They gave themselves over to darkness. 
but now they've been translated into the kingdom of his dear son, in whom we, that is Israel, have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And then through Israel, the whole world will ultimately have forgiveness of sins. Back to Luke 9. Luke 9, verse 32. So this is the exodus that Christ is going to accomplish. And, uh, you know, if you look in Matthew 24, ultimately you're going to see that God is going to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. This is the second exodus. And he's going to bring his people to Jerusalem. Luke 9, verse 32. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. So this is, he's praying and he's glorified and uh, he's speaking with Moses and Elijah and they're starting to fall asleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. So that's, that's fulfilling right what Christ said of a truth. There be some standing here that will not see death until they see the Basilea or the reign or the rule of God. And it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. So they didn't hear what was being discussed, but they see these three glorious beings, and they want the beings to dwell with them. So they want to create three tabernacles, so that these three glorious beings can dwell with them. While he spoke. So while Peter was speaking, there came a cloud and overshadowed them. And they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This, so there's three men, three, three glorious beings there, but this is my beloved son. Hear him. So God singles out the Messiah and says, This is my son. Listen to him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close and told no man in those days of those things which they had seen. They're going to say that they'll talk about it later, but they understand very clearly this must be kept quiet at this stage. And God the Father himself is highlighting the importance of their loyalty to Christ. This is my son. Listen to him. Verse 37. And it came to pass... That on the next day, when they were come down from the hill, much people met him. So a lot of people are meeting him now because they all they know he has these miracles. And behold, a man of the company cried out, saying, Master, I beg you, look upon my son, for he is my only child. And lo, a spirit takes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it tears him that he foams again. And bruising him hardly departs from him. So this uh, demonic being would take over this little boy, really violently take him over. The, the boy is foaming at the mouth. And then when it leaves him, it leaves him in a violent way. And it sort of uh, it causes him to be bruised. And I begged your disciples to cast him out, and they couldn't. Remember at the beginning of, the ver of, of this chapter, Christ gave the disciples power over all demons, including this one. But the disciples couldn't cast this one out. And Jesus answering said, so he's just coming down from uh, the mountain with uh, Peter, James, and John. And they saw the glory of him there. And now the crowds catch up with him. And this particular man wants this uh, exorcism for his son. But the disciples that Jesus 
were, that were not with Jesus, they, they could not exercise this demon. And Jesus answered, said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and, and suffer you? Bring your son here. So again, he expected his disciples to be able to do this exorcism because he gave them power and authority. Verse 1 says he gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure all diseases. And yet they couldn't do it. So he says, bring your son here. And as he was yet coming, the devil threw him down. So they saw firsthand what the father was talking about. So as he was coming, the devil threw him down and tore at him. And Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child and delivered him again to his father. And they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. So clearly this is a demonic force and it is no match for Christ. So you cannot say that this is uh, Christ has the power of the devil. He's crushing the, the devil's power. And so they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they were wondering, everyone, at all things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples, Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. So he really wants the disciples to understand this. As much as you see me helping these people, as much as you see me crushing the power of the devil, I need you to understand that I'm going to be betrayed. And when I'm betrayed, it's very important that you are not ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of me. This is all part of the process. I have an exodus that I have to accomplish. And in order to save these people, I have to lead the perfect life according to the covenant, and then I need to be crucified so that I can redeem these people with my blood. So let these things sink down. Really make sure you get this. The Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying. And it was hid from them, that they perceived it not. And they feared to ask him of that saying. So, you know, they, were, they had already upset him because they couldn't exorcise the child, the demon out of the child. And he says, oh, this perverse generation, how much longer am I going to be with you? So they had already upset him. They didn't want to ask about this. However, verse 46, then there arose reasoning among them, which of them should be the greatest? So they clearly got it, that Jesus was a king. And he was coming into his kingdom. And so when he comes into his kingdom, they're now wondering, I wonder, you know, we're all going to have offices, but which one of us will be the greatest? And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him and said unto them whosoever shall receive this child in my name receives me and whosoever receives me receives him that sent me for he that is least among you all the same shall be great so Christ is trying to explain to them look this kingdom that I'm bringing is totally different than any of the kingdoms you have ever experienced so when you're you know when they're here in the Roman Empire they see the glory of Rome and they, they see the glory of the different emperors and people, uh, rulers like Herod and then the emperor himself. They all have greatness. And Christ is saying, this kingdom that I'm bringing is the opposite. It's about service. 
It's about looking after the, the most vulnerable. And whoever does that, that's who's going to be great in my kingdom. Not these, and this again is a real clue to the work of the devil versus the work of Christ. The work of the devil is all about giving people glory now, giving them power to oppress and to harm others. So that when you're involved in false religion, false churches, false ideologies, the higher you go in these false religions, the more power you have over others, the more you can have your way with them. Christ is saying, that has nothing to do with me. That comes from the devil. In Christ's way, the higher you go, the more you serve. Jesus is the king, and he came to be crucified. Jesus is the king, and he came and he washed his disciples' feet. It's a completely different way of thinking. And that's why none of the kingdoms of this world have been able to bring peace. In fact, they bring the opposite. They bring bloodshed, violence, poverty, oppression, because they're all based on the devil's way of thinking. Verse 49, And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in your name, and we forbade him, because he doesn't follow with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. So they had a view that, hey, he's not part of our company, so we forbade him. And Christ is seeing a bigger picture here. And there's this collision between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And he's saying, you know, anybody who's not against us is for us. And we, we are going to find ourselves in a very similar time. That right now we're, we're seeing the rise of Islam, where every, anybody who's not a Muslim is a Kafir. And anybody who's a Kafir deserves to be killed or, or subjugated. And, and basically, Kafirs have to unite. And anybody who's not against us, anybody who's going to help us, is for us. So that's something that we need to understand. You know, people are getting very divisive and saying, you know, if you're not exactly and in, in, in you don't adhere to all of the principles of my church, then I want nothing to do with you. Well, the devil loves to divide in order to conquer. Verse 51. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is our Lord. He understands exactly what the, the disciples don't understand yet. But he understands exactly what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. And he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He came, he's a, he's a man on a mission. He's a prophet with a purpose. He has come for a very specific purpose. And this is to redeem his people. And so he's going to accomplish, as he says, he was talking with Moses and Elijah about the exodus that he will accomplish at Jerusalem. Verse 52, And sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him. So he's, he's saying, go on ahead and make, you know, I'll, I'll be following, but the Samaritans did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. So there was conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. And the Samaritans are really, they're a type of Israelites because, the, as I said earlier, the Assyrians had a different policy. And so they mixed the people and genetically compromised them so that they wouldn't have national pride. 
And uh, these Samaritans were a mixture of Israelites. They had, they, so, but the Jews did not see them as, as brothers. They saw them as a mixed breed. Uh, so there was conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. So because Christ was going to Jerusalem, the Samaritans would not receive him. Verse 54, And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, will you that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? even as Elijah did. So they, they knew the prophecy, they knew the scriptures. And, uh, well, let's just go to Elijah. This, this passage that they're referring to is in 2 Kings. 2 Kings 1 and verse 10. And Elijah answered, so they were, the king sent them to arrest Elijah. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And there came down fire from heaven and destroyed him and his 50. Again also, the king sent unto him another captain of fifty with his fifty. And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus has the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto him, said unto them, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. So this is the passage that they were referring to, that these men had not accepted Christ as... Uh, well, they did not accept him, that he's on his way to Jerusalem and they rejected him. So they're, they're not seeing him as a man of God. And so they're thinking, hey, do we, you've given us these miraculous powers. Should we command that fire come down and destroy these people? But he turned, verse 55, and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. So, you know, Elijah had a different mission and was dealing with uh, the king Christ is coming to redeem not only Judah but Israel as well, and these people are just—they're—they're—they're they're, um, they're being defensive, the disciples, and egotistical. Like, how dare them insult us in this way? And Christ is saying, "Look, this is not my spirit. You, you don't—you don't understand what what spirit you're of. This is this is really coming from the devil. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives." but to save them. So Christ understood, I have to go to Jerusalem. The fact that these people are not accepting me and is going to make my way harder, I can't take the direct route to Jerusalem. I'm going to have to go a longer route to get there. But my whole purpose of going there is to save first Israel, first Judah, then Israel, and then ultimately all mankind. And you're not understanding this. And they went to another village. So instead of going the shortcut, they had to go a longer way. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. So he was just so convinced and just so moved that he wanted to follow Christ wherever he would go. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man does not have where to lay his head. So are you sure you want to follow me? Because I don't have a home and uh, this is going to be hard. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, allow me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go and preach the kingdom of God. So what he was saying here was quite reasonable. I, you know, my, my father just died. I'd like to bury him first and uh, look after that. And Christ is like, No. This is your highest priority. I'm, I'm including you in this process. 
let the dead, the spiritually dead, bury their dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. This, this is a much higher purpose. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. So again, remember he's saying, look, you can't be my disciple unless I'm your highest priority. And here this man is saying, I, I, I get it, I see what you're doing, I want to follow you, but I want to bid farewell first. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So, if we don't get this, if we are called to help God in preaching the kingdom of God, and we don't understand just how big this is, what a big project this is, and just how significant this is, and what an honor it is to be recruited to participate in this. If we dare look back, if we're double-minded, we're not fit for the kingdom of God. So hopefully, as we have gone through this chapter, you're beginning to think about your life. You're beginning to think you want to really understand the Bible, and not the sort of common popular, traditional version of Christianity, which is really a, a Greco-Roman or Greek philosophy version of Christianity. We need to break away from that because that's a deception. And we need to understand the pure Word of God. Let's just read the Word of God for ourselves. Pick up the Bible and just read it. And try to understand what is it, what is it really saying. And if you want help, reach out to us. The best email to reach out to us is info at cgi.org info at cgi.org and I know many people out there when I talk about you know we're not going to heaven no such thing as burning in hell forever God is not a trinity uh, many of these things are very jarring because they're so entrenched in our understanding of Christianity Christ was not born on Christmas Easter is not a Christian holiday these things are very jarring but great if you're jarred that's wonderful now do the research there's a, you know, ask Mr. Google. It's easy to find out these, this, where do these teachings come from? And if you need help, reach out to us. We have many, many booklets and articles that, that really expound and, and show you the scriptures, where to look in your Bible at info, info at cgi.org or go to our website at cgi.org. So we'll stop there at uh, the end of Luke chapter 9. God willing, next week we'll do Luke chapter 10. I'm going to get my sister Avenel. Uh, on the line, where we can uh, just chat a bit about what we've covered today, and uh, just hold on while we play uh, Sister Avenel's uh, song that she has uh, written and, uh, and, and performed for us, and I'll be right, right back shortly. I'm just having a little bit of trouble here, I'm not sure what's going on, but I'll just call Sister Avenel. So you get me, uh, I can't get the music loaded. But I'll just call my sister here, and uh, I'll be right there with you. Let's see here, Sister Abanel. Yeah, so while I just get her on the line, uh, that is Luke chapter 9, and God willing, next week we'll do Luke chapter 10. Greetings, brother. Sister Abanel, how are you? Fantastic. This was an awesome lesson today. Praise God. This lesson was for me today. Oh, what do you mean? For me. Really, really for me. What's going on? What, 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 what did you uh, take from it? Um, just a second. 
um, just <laughs> something happened to me yesterday, and it's training that you're talking about this today. And I went to the to the show, and um, I brought it up, and I was sitting at a table with about six or seven other people, and we started discussing it. You know, brother, in this world, that is why the Lord said in, I can remember if it is Matthew, that it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye yes. than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that has many, many, many meanings. People take it out of context. Yes. But it has many meanings. And making God first and foremost in everything that we do has to be one of the most difficult things for people in this world wanting to follow Christ. Absolutely yes. correct. And there are so many distractions. So many distractions. And then we have our own human nature as well, and, and, and we're wired to want to put ourselves first. Yes. Yes, I was caught up in a situation yesterday whereby I was prepared to go to church. Everything was prepared, everything. I prepared everything to go to church, but I had to wait on a delivery from a company. And that didn't go too well. I ended up going to church at, I think, 4 o'clock or 4.30. And it was very upsetting, and nothing went well that day for oh dear. delivery. Actually, I didn't even get the delivery. Oh dear. And I said, you know something, that's a message. So my other brothers and sisters are to the church. I spoke to them about it, and they said, never do that on the Sabbath. Yes. But then when you have a situation whereby they say to you, we only deliver on Saturday, sorry ma'am, you know, you're caught now between a rock and a hard place, and you're wondering, okay, you cannot tell them, okay, you have to deliver on a Monday or Tuesday. No, 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 we only deliver on Saturdays. So when you're caught in that, and then I started brainstorming and I said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Am I really working? All kinds of questions started coming up in my head. I'm not really wor working, I'm just opening my door. And this guy is just delivering something. I'm not really working. Mm. And you know how the enemy works. Yes, start to justify ourselves. Pardon? We start to justify ourselves. Yes, yes. And then um, I said, I promised God and myself and my brothers and sisters, I would never ever do that again. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Yes. Yeah, and, and you know, just to the audience out there, notice our sister is talking about church services on the Sabbath. So if you're keeping church services on Sunday, you need to search the scriptures and yes. see where in the scriptures is Sunday authorized. And I think you'll find it's not. It's not. It's always the Sabbath. It's not nowhere in the Bible. Yes. Nowhere. And, and, and this is, we, we've got to come back to the tr to contend for the faith that was once delivered. And that's what we're contending for. Yes. So do you think that, oh, do you think that um, what happened yesterday, what, how would you have handled a situation like that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's unusual for a business to say, 
It's unusual for a business to say they only deliver on Saturday. That's that's quite unusual. So usually you can make arrangements to say, I, I need this to come on Friday or take it a bit later and it will come during the week. Um, but I, I don't know of any business that will only deliver on Saturday. But if, even if that was the case, if, especially if you live in a building or you have a neighbor, uh, they could just deliver it to the neighbor and when you come back. But definitely we have to prioritize. We have to hunger and thirst for the word of God. And that once we put our hand to the plow, we cannot look back. And and I, it was well did. The reprimand, trust me, was well received. Mm. And I realized, yes, Avenel, no compromise. That's no it. compromise. That's it. And the devil is going to put situations in front of all of us. And, you know, you're, you're a very humble sister. We're, we're all going to have these different situations. But we develop muscle. After a while, we develop muscle. And, we do, and when we deepen our faith, it's like we, we go through situations and we see that God comes through. You know, people have been fired because they refuse to break the Sabbath. Yes. And, you know, we just need you just this one time, and then, no, I cannot work on the Sabbath. Well, if you don't work, we're going to fire you. And then they end up getting a better job. And it's like, you, you, you couldn't foresee that. But they were just true to the Word of God, and then God comes through. Yes. Yes, yes. Praise the Lord. Praise God. It was a good lesson today. I learned a lot from this. Praise God. Yes. Praise God. And a lot of people don't understand that passage where Christ says, you know, uh, I, you know he's talking to Moses and Elijah about this exodus that he must accomplish in Jerusalem. And that, I mean, when, I under, when I went into the Greek and said, this does not say deceased, this says exodus. And the scripture speaks many times about this second exodus and that God is going to be known as the God who, who, who the God of this second exodus and the first exodus won't even be referred to again. Yes. Yes. Hmm. And the part um, pertaining to the Jews and um, the rebellion, and how we were grafted in, and Jesus really came and died for them. Yes. And we are grafted in as a part of the family of God. This is very interesting. Absolutely. And the whole idea that Christ is the propitiation for Israel. God, God doesn't have a, a covenant agreement with Gentiles. It's this covenant agreement that he has with Israel that causes the wrath of God to be upon Israel. And Christ comes to take that wrath away. Yes. But I've been to different Judaic congregations. And um, you know, um, Brother Adrian, there's a pride mm. about some of the people that they feel as though we are the one that's going to be saved and we are the one that's going to be in the new Jerusalem. And there's this pride that I don't understand, you know? Well, <laughs> it's, uh, I would say that when they read the scriptures, and I just, I just learned this week, sister, that uh, there's a new Bible that has uh, come out. It's called the Israel Bible. And it's, it's a bestseller. Like people are just, it's flying off the shelves. And, and all the Jews are buying it, but Christians are buying it as well. And even though it doesn't have the New Testament, Christians are buying it because they want to read the Bible that Christ read and that the disciples read. So they're right to acknowledge that, you know, the early church did not have the New Testament. Their Bible was the Old Testament. But uh, this Israel Bible, what's special about it, uh, first of all, it reads from right to left instead of left to right. But what's really special about it is everywhere in the Bible where Israel is mentioned, it's highlighted. I think it's highlighted in red. So as you flip through this Bible, you begin to realize this is a book about Israel. And most people don't realize that. Yeah. But, but what they're doing is they're confusing 
the nation that we call Israel today, which was formed in 1948, they're thinking that that's the Israel that's mentioned in the Bible. And it's not. It is not. You know, Israel in the Bible is a man called Jacob. And this man had his name changed from Jacob to Israel. Israel, yes. And he, this, this man had 12 sons. Yeah. Each son started a tribe. So there are 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah. One of these tribes is Judah. And we call the, the descendants of Judah Jews. So in 1948, because of this Zionist movement, uh, the, the Jews went to Israel, this nation they call Israel today, uh, but this is, this is just one of the 12 tribes. This is Judah. So we mustn't confuse the, the nation today called Israel with Israel in the Bible. Also, what's very important for us to understand is Christ said to the Jews in Matthew 23, the end of Matthew 23, that they would not see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because they rejected him. And so for them to think that they have right to the land today, when they have rejected Christ, they do not have right to the land. And, and what's, what's going to happen is they are going to go into captivity. They are going to be slaughtered. Uh, Zechariah tells us this. But then that's when Christ will return and he will fight for them. And that's when they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord. And they, they will acknowledge Christ then. But it's very hard as human beings... And, you know, the, the arrogant sister that you see in, these, the, the, in the Jews, because they read the scriptures and they see that God has a covenant with them, and he's going to exalt them, and they're going to be the, the, the exalted nation, and the whole earth is going to come to Jerusalem to learn the law of God. Isaiah 2 shows us this. Micah 2 shows us this. Isaiah 60 shows us this. It's multiple scriptures. Zechariah 14. So it's all over the Bible that there is going to be this nation God's people, that the whole world is going to come to, to learn the way of God. But you know, we understand in the church that God has opened this way up to Gentiles, and the, there's a new covenant with Israel, and the Holy Spirit is in these, this, this new covenant community, and it's, it's now the church. But you know, we, the church, can have this same arrogance that we're the special people, we're the first fruits, and we begin to look, oh, you're, the, you're in the world, you're the world, we're the church, we're the special people. And it's just, so we can't be so hard on the Jews, because we ourselves suffer from this same insecurity, this same self-centeredness. Yes. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Yeah. Hello. Yes, very, very much so, as you said, sister. Yes, yes. absolutely. You're very right. <laughs> yes, the arrogance is, you know, it's everywhere. But what we do have to say, you know, uh, God says, say unto Judah, say unto Zion, your God reigns. And so the whole world has to come to understand. We have to read the Bible and come to understand that, yes, there is a God. Yes, he has entered into a relationship with Israel. And that, yes, Israel was unfaithful, and Israel has to be punished and scattered and, and taken into slavery and subjugated, but he is going to redeem Israel. And he's moving today to make all of this happen. And when he returns, Israel is going to be exalted. And, and the nation of Israel will be exalted. We, we will be the king priests of the earth. And the whole earth is going to come to, come to know that the, the true God 
is the God of Israel and nobody else. There, there is no other God except the God of Israel, Amen. and he'll be known as the God of Israel forever. Amen. What a what a great God we serve, and this is you know, this this mission that Christ is on, and they, this, this is why they reject Christ. They don't understand that he had to come as the suffering servant in order to redeem them. It's because because of their evil that he had to come as the suffering servant. If they were not evil, then he could just come and redeem them. He could just come and, and rescue them and and put down the enemies. But because of their evil, he had to come and first shed his blood in order to redeem them. Yeah. Yeah, and then, and then, because of their rebellion, he's grafting in the Gentiles, and and so we are we we all have access to this eternal and this wonderful salvation. Yes, yes, yes. Amen, amen, amen. Praise God. You are a blessed teacher. Well, you know, God gives us teachers, and so we all have our different gifts, and we all need each other. So I, I praise God. I thank you, sister, for that. Um, I, I I have this passion. To, to teach this, and uh, God God gives us each other, and we're all yeah. we're all members of the same body. I have the passion to listen every Sunday. <laughs> Praise God. Praise. So, I look forward to it every Sunday. Praise God. So t tell your friends as well, so that we you know we all learn this line by line and see what the Word yeah. of God says. Yeah. Great. Listening people, I told. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, can you give me a short pertaining to the prison ministry? I want to talk to you about the prison ministry. I'll, I'll give you a call back then. So we're just coming up to the bottom of the hour here. So we'll, we'll f let these people go. And thank you so much for your interest. Thanks, sister, for your comments. And God willing, we'll connect next week. And I'll, I'll give you a shout as well. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much. Be You're nice. welcome. God bless. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, Yeah, so you've been listening to Line Upon Line, where we study God's Word line by line. This is Life 101, where we live in faith every day. Be blessed.